0: Uh, once again, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the building or whether you're worshiping with us online, we are absolutely thrilled that you are with us. Hopefully when you came in uh, the room this morning, if you're here in the building, you picked up a worship guide. On the back side of the worship guide is a place where you can take notes as we walk through the sermon together. Um, as you know, if you've been here uh, some this year, we are walking through the New Testament as a church family this year. Uh, we're calling it Foundations New Testament where we are reading five chapters a week uh, throughout the New Testament and so at the bottom of your sermon notes you will see where we are uh, this week we'll be reading John chapter 20 and 21 and then we'll read uh, 1 John uh, 1 through 3 and very soon we'll get to the book of Revelation and then we'll finish out the year in the book of Matthew but for now we are in the book of John and uh, so on the front of your worship guide, you'll see the, the, the title for this series, and that is Signs and Statements, because throughout the book of John, we see the, the gospel writer John write the account of the life of, uh, and story of Jesus, and he expresses it in many different ways, but two big ways he expresses it is by showing us signs that jesus performs which there are seven of them and then seven statements that jesus makes about himself when he says i am and the signs were designed not just to be a miracle which they were but they were all miracles that pointed to a greater more important truth and that is revealing who jesus is in the midst of his miracles and then the seven statements where jesus says i am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the resurrection and the life. All of these statements, which today we'll look at, I am the true vine, all of these statements are are true about who Jesus is and also a description that Jesus is God himself, God in the flesh. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 15. If you've got a Bible with you, please open to John 15. If you don't have a Bible or or the Bible on your phone, you can grab a Bible in in a chair near you, underneath the chair. Um, And if you don't have a Bible or you need a Bible at the house, feel free to take that home with you. That'll be our gift to you. But as we get ready to read John 15 in just a second, I want to start with this. We as a church talk quite a bit about being a disciple, making disciples, being the church to the glory of God. And the question is, what do we mean by that statement? What does it really mean to be a disciple? What does it really mean to make disciples? What does it really mean to be the church? What does it really mean to do all of this to the glory of God? How do we describe it? How do we define it? How do we live it out? How does it function within our own lives individually? How does it function within our life as a church body? How do we live out this idea of being disciples, making disciples, being the church to the glory of God? I think the best way for us to begin to understand that a little bit better is to look directly at the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is probably a real good source to answer the question what does all of this mean what does all of this look like and so if you'll notice the sermon title that chose this morning is discipleship according to Jesus. So what does Jesus say in John chapter 15 about what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. Before we get to John 15 I, I want to kind of describe what's going on uh, in this part of Jesus's story. In John chapter 14, running through 15, 16, and 17, so there's four chapters that are this way, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those chapters are referred to as the Farewell Discourse. And the reason it's called the Farewell Discourse is because it's sandwiched between chapter 13, which is the Passover meal, the Last Supper, uh, what we celebrated a moment ago. It's when Jesus is saying, I'm about to be arrested. And and then in chapter 18 is when we see him get arrested. And so these four chapters are referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse because these in some shape, form, or fashion are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. Granted, Jesus would resurrect on the third day. He would stay around for 40 more days and be teaching them other things. But this is the last opportunity Jesus has to teach them some things and to share with them some things before he is arrested and crucified. And so these words are his chance to say, hey, disciples, this is what it looks like to follow me. And so we don't want to miss these words. We shouldn't miss any words in Scripture. It's all God's inspired word. It's all God's um, word that, that can teach us how to live our lives. But there's just something knowing that Jesus spoke these words right before his arrest. And so we pick it up in John chapter 15. We're going to read. Uh, The whole chapter is amazing. 14, 15, 16, 17 are all incredible. We've read through those chapters this week. If you didn't have a chance to read it, I encourage you, maybe today when you get to the house, read through these chapters. But we're going to look at eight specific verses uh, from John 15, verses 1 through 8. All of these are the words of Jesus. Um, And so if you have a red-letter Bible, all of this is in red. Here's what it says. Jesus says, I am... and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So in this text, Jesus is using a metaphor. He's using a metaphor of a vine and branches and fruit and and how a vineyard operates. He's using this metaphor to make a point. In some ways you could kind of say he's using this as a parable or an allegory of sorts. And there are three main characters that you probably notice in this text. And in case you didn't, I'll run through them. Or just so that you can have it fresh on your mind. Here here are the three characters in this account. The first one is Jesus himself. When Jesus says at the very beginning, I am the true vine. He specifically is a grapevine is what he's talking about. He's talking about grapes. He says, I am the the vine and as such he begins to describe how Jesus himself how he is the source of our life and he is the source of strength for everything that we do and then the second character that we see is the father how does he describe the father in the ESV, he says that the father is the vine dresser. Now, that's probably not a word you use every day, uh, but I hope that maybe you understand what he means by that. Uh, other, other translations could have a couple of words. They could have gardener or farmer. It's the, he's the one who works the, the, the field and, and the vineyard and, and works the vines and branches. It says that he, as the vine dresser or the gardener, removes fruitless branches and that he prunes those that do have fruit on them and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then there's the third character and that is the disciples. Now what I want you to hear is that as Jesus shared with these disciples, you are the branches. Jesus is not just talking about the 12 disciples that are in the room with him. Actually, it'd be 11 because Judas, as it turns out, did not abide in him. But he's not just talking to these 11 disciples. He's talking about all disciples of all ages that we are the branches. Think for just a minute about a branch of a vine. The the vine is the root where it comes out of the ground. And then it it begins to, 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 to branch out, if you will. And each of those branches only have their survival or their life or existence because of the source, which is the vine. And so branches exist, live and thrive, and they do so through the vine. Branches exist and thrive in order that they might grow fruit, they might grow uh, grapes. And again, that's only because of the vine. So we play an important role here but we are not the central point of this story at all. Instead, Jesus, the true vine is, and the father and the role that he plays is the vine dresser, and then we have a critical role, but only as we trust in Jesus are we the branches that provide fruit. Now, you could be thinking, my goodness, of all of the illustrations that Jesus could have used, why in the world would he pick a random Thing like grapes? Why a vineyard? Why vines? I know what you think about me usually, and that is of all the things Alan could talk about, to use his illustrations, why does he always choose football? I don't know why I do. I just like football. I don't have one to use today, but we typically will choose things that we relate to and or our audience may relate to. And if you aren't already aware of this. Jesus did not pick a random metaphor or illustration with the vine. Rather, he picked something that would resonate with them for many different reasons. One reason is because the the nation of Israel was an agrarian society, and one of the crops that they grew quite a bit of was Uh, grapevines. 20-plus years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Israel myself and and to see the lay of the land, and I was looking at my pictures. That was back in the day when you didn't have your phone and you could instantly look at pictures or digital, and you you took a picture and you hope it turned out, and then you wait two weeks to get the things back. I looked at the pictures that I took of when we were at a vineyard, and there were so many shadows you couldn't even see a vine in. I was like, why did I even take this picture? I was hopeful to be able to show it on the screen. But when we went to Israel, there were vineyards every It's natural that Jesus would talk about vines, but more importantly, the reason it resonated with his people is because all throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as the vine or the vineyard. God called Israel his vine. He planted it, he tended it, and he expected it to bear fruit to all nations. But if you read the Old Testament and the accounts that talk about the vine, while it sets up Israel as the vine, it always talks about how that vine has not done its job. That that all too often there's either no fruit or there's wild fruit or it's useless, it needs to be removed. I want us to look briefly at Isaiah chapter 5. There are many passages in the Old Testament we could look at about the vine, but I'm going to only look at this one. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 because uh, Isaiah writes the words of the Lord here and it helps us understand how Israel was seen as the vine. Here's what it says. "Let Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. The Lord had a vineyard. It says that he dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall be pruned or or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds and they rain no rain upon it. And then verse 7 describes what this vineyard is. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting and he looked for justice but behold bloodshed for righteousness and behold an outcry all throughout the Old Testament you see stories like that that Israel had not lived up to what they were supposed to do So here in that context, Jesus steps up in verse 1 of chapter 15 of John and says, I am the true vine. He's the genuine vine. He's faithful and he's true. He's able to produce fruit, good fruit, and then produce that good fruit in us. So this passage... Is going to use the analogy of a vine to help us see what discipleship is all about and on your sermon notes you'll see three main points and with each of these it will set us up to understand about discipleship first we'll look at the goal of discipleship then we'll look at the proof of discipleship and then we'll look at the power of discipleship so the first one there on your notes is answering the question what is the goal of discipleship and it says bringing glory to God so when we say we should be a disciple who makes disciples what is the goal or purpose or end game if you will in this idea of being a disciple It's to bring glory to God so what does it mean to glorify God look at verse 8 before I describe what glorifying God is about look at verse 8 it says by this my father is Glorified. All of this passage is for the glory of God. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to magnify him, to praise him, to extol him, to ascribe him honor, to acknowledge his being, his attributes, his acts. We're to make much of God's glory. We don't create God's glory. God's glory is innate in Him. It's who He is, yet it's our task, it's our responsibility as followers of Jesus, as disciples, to proclaim that glory, to make it known to every nation and tribe and people and language. Now, I've got a few verses. I think they may be on the screen uh, as we go through. We're going to just rapid-fire read them. I'm not going to preach these texts. I just want you to see where God's glory shows up throughout Scripture. I'm going to begin in Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 14. You may want to jot these down on your notes. And as I read these texts, look for the word glory in it. Here's what Habakkuk two fourteen. One of the prophets says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We are to spread God's glory over the entire globe. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we're to spread God's glory around the globe, and whatever we do, we are to bring him glory. Now let's kind of walk through chronologically some of the scripture. Psalm chapter 86, verses 8 through 10 says this, There is none like you, God, among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Look over to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 through 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name Whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Then in John chapter 17, I'm going to read this text. This is from our reading this week as well. It's from um, a prayer that Jesus prayed. Listen to John 17, 1 through 5. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus glorified the Father by his work on this earth, and it's our job to glorify him by pointing others to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us to adopt, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And here it is. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in one more verse at the end of the scripture revelation 21 23 it comes down to god's glory in heaven it says in the city heaven has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb." We could go on and on and on and read about God's glory. Did you know that God's glory is mentioned over 400 times in, in Scripture? Did you know by, by that word glory? Did you know that the word glory is used almost 200 times in the New Testament alone? It's all for God's glory. You see, God's purpose for history, His supreme goal throughout history from the beginning to the end of history is to display His glory and to bring honor to His name. If that's God's goal, why should that not be our goal as well? So if you're a disciple of Jesus... Your discipleship is all for His glory. By this, John 15, 8, by this, my Father is glorified. So we exist to proclaim God's glory in every aspect of our lives. We don't exist just to glorify God when we come together as a church family on Sunday mornings. But rather, in our 24-7, 365 days a year, we're to bring him glory. So I encourage you, let's bring our thoughts, our affections, and our actions in our life in line with this goal to glorify God. And the way this all begins is by acknowledging that we should delight in God's glory more than anything else said a moment ago, I wasn't going to talk about football, but I guess I'm wrong. I did not expect the outcome of the Aggie game last night. I picked the score 50 to 14, Bama winning, not because I wanted them to. I just thought that's what would happen. The game turned out differently. As amazing as that game was, if that's where we find our glory and our sense of purpose over a stupid football game, we have missed the point. The glory of God is what this life is about. Don't get me wrong. We can have fun doing other things. But the context of all that we do should be to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. So to be a disciple, the goal is to glorify God. Now, secondly... The second point on my notes answers the question, what is the proof of discipleship? You'll see on the notes, bearing much fruit. The proof of discipleship is bearing much fruit. It says in verse 8, by this my father is glorified. How is he glorified? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This idea of bearing fruit is a huge deal in this text. I don't know if you noticed or not, but in John chapter 15 verses 1 through 8, Jesus repeated himself about 112 times with some of the concepts. And any time that Jesus repeats himself, it's going to be important for us to see. This idea of bearing much fruit is a big deal in this text. And what I mean by that is, in the Greek, the word bear or produce fruit, the word bear is used six times in those eight verses. That's a big deal. The word fruit is also used six times in those eight verses. Consider where some of the places it's used. Verse 2, Jesus says that we're to bear more fruit. In verse 5, it says, he it is that bears much fruit. And then in verse 8, that you bear much fruit. Not only should we produce or bear fruit, we should produce more or much. What is he saying here? He says the quantity and the quality of the fruit that we produce through the power of the vine, through the power of Jesus Christ, should be incredibly great. That we should produce great quantities and qualities of fruit. You see, it's just natural It's natural and expected that a grapevine produces grapes. That's kind of why you plant a grapevine, is so that you get fruit or grapes out of the deal. So likewise, Jesus uses that illustration to say that it's only natural and expected for a disciple to produce fruit in his or her life. You're going, Alan, I don't really know what you're saying here. Like, am I supposed to be growing apples or oranges or grapes? What am I supposed to be growing? Well, obviously Jesus is not talking in this sense that we are to grow literal fruit. Rather, fruit, just as on a grapevine, is an outward expression or proof of what's going on internally as the life of that vine produces a grape. Likewise, in our lives, the work of God in our lives should be an then produce outward expressions or proof of what's happening on the inside if that makes sense and so when you look at a fruit whether it be on a tree or whether it be on a vine if you don't know what the tree or vine looks like you can still identify what it is by looking at the fruit right if you see a grape you can pretty much know that's a grapevine if you see an apple you pretty much know that's an apple tree if you see an orange you know it's an orange tree and i could go on from there But Jesus says that we can identify a tree by its fruit. Likewise, you can identify a person by his or her fruit. You see, the life that is going on on the inside of a vine sends out to the branches fruit that develops. Likewise, when Jesus is at work in our lives on the inside, then fruit will produce on the outside of us that will point back to the fact that we are his, that we are a disciple. So... When we are in Jesus, he says that we're to abide in him, and when we abide in him, we'll produce much fruit. What does it mean to be in Jesus? What does it mean to produce fruit? What kind of fruit is Jesus talking about in our lives? In Scripture, you can see all kinds of fruit mentioned. You can see fruit of people who come to know Jesus, salvation. You can see fruit of righteousness, where a person is becoming more and more like Jesus. You can see fruit of repentance, where a person repents of their sin. Fruit can be multi-layered, but I believe at the bare minimum, and most importantly, what Jesus is getting at here, is the fruit of the Spirit. Paul refers to the fruit of the Spirit. Do you remember it? It's in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good—sorry, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I think that Jesus is saying that the fruit of a disciple, the proof of a disciple, is the fact that he or she is becoming more like Christ because of the work of the Spirit within our lives. And because of that, then fruit bearing is the identifying mark of a true believer in Jesus. Can I ask you to do a serious moment of reflection? Would you ask yourself, is my life producing fruit? Is my life producing the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, and 23. Am I looking more and more like Jesus? Is my life bearing fruit? Let me say this. If your life is not bearing fruit, then you may want to check the authenticity of what you think is your salvation. Jesus says that a disciple will produce fruit. He doesn't say a disciple should produce fruit. He says that fruit is the proof of our discipleship. Are you producing fruit? Is Christ producing fruit in you? If not, check your salvation. I do want to point this out real quickly as I move through. What does it say in verse 2? About even those that are producing fruit. It says that the vine dresser, the father, it says that he, um, in verse 2, it says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. A couple of weeks ago, we were doing a, a work day here at the church building, and Clark Moody, the resident crepe myrtle expert, was out there, and uh, he looked like Edward Scissorhands, and he was, you know, shaping up the crepe myrtle and all of that. and. As I was talking to him, I said, I'm not very good at this. Uh, maybe you've heard of this before. I, I'm not very good at dealing with crepe, crepe myrtles. Instead, I'm a crepe murderer. Like I, I obliterate them. I like cut them back too far. don't do the right thing. They don't bear more fruit like they died because I've touched them. But, but in reality, when the Father prunes us, in many ways, uh, pruning can look like a cruel painful and wasteful process did you know that when they prune a a grapevine back they almost take all the branches off like it almost goes back completely to the vine and the reality is this we need everything pruned from our life except for the vine and that is Jesus Christ and his work in us all too often we have frivolous other things in our lives and we need that pruned back so that we can live for God's glory and experience God's goodness in our life so I encourage you If you are producing fruit, allow the Father to prune you for his glory and for your good. So we see that the the goal or purpose of discipleship is is to glorify God. We we see that the proof of our discipleship is found in bearing fruit. Let's answer the third question, and that is what is the source of power? What is the source of power in discipleship? It's there on your notes. It says remaining in Christ. That's where our power is found, to bear much fruit. Look at verses 4 and 5. It's right in the heart of the verses we're looking at today, and he repeats himself a few times here, but this is good stuff. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, depending on the translation, I read out the ESV and it has the word abide, but many translations use the word remain, and so that's why I use the word remain here. We are to remain in Christ. What does the word abide or remain mean? In the Greek it means um, to abide, to remain, to continue, to dwell in. I love that idea of dwelling in. We are to dwell in the very presence of Christ and allow Him to dwell in us. That word abide in these eight verses in the Greek is used seven times in this text. In verse one, it says that a branch abides in the vine. So he's using the illustration of the metaphor. But then five times, Jesus commands us in these eight verses to abide in him. He says, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. He says that five times in these verses. And then it says that his word in verse seven, his words are to abide in us. And then a couple of times he doesn't use the word abide, but he alludes to the fact that he abides in us. So abiding in Christ and him abiding in us is a central theme in this text. So how is it that we bring glory to God? By bearing fruit. How is it that we bear fruit? Only by the the abiding in him. If you were to take a literal vine uh, uh, and it had branches on it, If you were to sever the branch from the vine and no longer are the vine and the branch connected, is the branch going to grow grapes? Absolutely not, because its connection has been severed. Or to use an analogy uh, for Michael Brown, if you have a corded vacuum cleaner and you sever it from the wall, it has no power, right? And I know that Michael knew what was going on. It was all, I think, Michael did. uh, It was all to be funny on the video. But the idea is, if something is designed to be plugged into the wall, you take that plug out, then all of a sudden it is powerless, literally and figuratively. Likewise in our lives. If we don't stay connected to the vine, if we don't stay connected to Jesus, if we don't abide in Him, remain in Him, continue in Him, dwell in His presence, thrive on an intimate relationship with Him, we will be powerless. We can't display the fruits of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter five on our own. We can't produce fruit of salvation on our own we can't produce fruit of repentance on our own we must stay connected to Jesus Christ for in that connection is where we have our power so what does it mean to remain in Christ what does it mean to abide in Christ what does it mean to continue in Christ it means much more than simply although this is important it means much more than simply continuing to believe in him Yes, continue to believe in Him. That's a great thing. But it's more than just continuing to believe in Him. But instead, it is continuing to live in union or unity with Him. We are to stay connected to Him. Christ made us to be in an intimate relationship with Him. And when we're walking in intimacy with Christ, then we stay connected to Him. Whenever we begin to kind of go out and do our own thing, then that connection is severed. Look at verse 7. I think in verse 7, we will see two aspects of what we need to do to stay connected to him. In verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There are two things that are mentioned in verse 7. One is his word. And the second one has to do with prayer. So let's look at these two things. If we're to stay connected to Christ, if we're to abide in him, if we're to remain in him, if we're to have his power in us, if we're to stay connected to the vine, then we first and foremost must, um, we must honor and accept the authority of his word in our lives. In verse seven, it says, my, if my words abide in you, we must accept the authority of God's Word for our life. What does it look like to abide in God's Word? It means that we need to study God's Word. Why is it that we're going through a reading plan? Is it so that we can check off at the end of the year and go, yep, we read through the New Testament. We accomplished that. Let's get our medals and ribbons for that. No, the reason we're asking you to consider reading a chapter a day, five days a week, out of the New Testament is so that we can study God's Word to see who He is so that we can respond and live accordingly. What does it mean to abide in God's Word? Not only study it, but we are to meditate upon it. That we don't just read it and give it a cursory glance or say, oh yeah, I've read that story. Like I know Jesus died on the cross, so I can kind of skip through the end of John. I don't have to read it very closely. No, we're to meditate on God's word. We're to study God's word. We're to memorize God's word. We're to discuss it with other people in our lives. Uh, if you're not in a hope group yet, I encourage you to plug into a hope group. Why do we have hope groups? Why do we have these small groups during the course of the week? We have it for a couple of reasons. One is so we can experience Christian fellowship or community together as a group of people and also so we can discuss God's word together. In our hope groups, most weeks, what we're discussing is the text that we looked at from Sunday morning. And so we don't need to just study God's word. We don't need to just meditate God's word. We don't just need to memorize God's word. We need to discuss it with others so that we can begin to understand it even better. There's not multiple interpretations of a text out there, but there are multiple ways that a correctly interpreted scripture passage can then be applied to a person's life, whether you live here or in another country, whether you're a boy or a girl, whether you're an adult or or, 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 uh, a young adult, whether you're a parent or not a parent, whether you have a job or don't have a job, whether you're a student or whether you have this interest or that interest. We have all kinds of scenarios in life that allows us to apply God's word, so we should Uh, abide in God's Word by studying, meditating, memorizing, discussing. We should pray God's Word. One way that we can meditate on God's Word, one way that we can really spend time uh, abiding in God's Word is to pray through a passage of Scripture and and use that to guide our prayers. And, And then another way, of course, is to actually apply it to our lives. Don't just read it. Don't just study it. Don't just know more about it, but then walk away and do something with the knowledge that God has given to you. So, one way to abide in Christ is to abide in his word. The other way is to stay in constant contact with him through prayer. Verse 7, he says, if you're abiding in me, if my words are abiding in you, then he says you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What he's saying here is this. When we abide in him, when his words abide in us, then we have a desire to pray to him. And when we pray to him, we can ask whatever we want and it'll be given to us. And not because they're selfish prayers, but because we're abiding in him, we're naturally going to pray for his will. If we pray for his will, then it will be done. So it's not like uh, a lot of you go, yeah, last night I prayed that a uh, and would win the game and Bama would lose. No, that's not the prayer that Jesus is talking about at the end of verse seven. He's saying, pray whatever you will, uh, if you're abiding in me, and it'll be granted because you'll be praying in accordance with my will to be done. So, how do we abide in Christ? We abide in His Word. We abide in prayer with Him, and then along those same lines is allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work in us. And, and the reason I say that is because what does He say? He says that we're to abide in Him, but that He also abides in us. It says there in verse four: Abide in Me, and I in you. How is Jesus abiding in us. God's word is clear. Whenever we trust in Jesus for salvation, whenever we acknowledge that we are a sinner in need of a Savior, whenever we repent of our sins and because of God's grace, his, he, he forgives us and washes us clean of our sins, says that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit is abiding in us. And to say that we abide in Christ means that we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our lives. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our lives, then the fruit of the Spirit will begin to grow. So, the life of a disciple, our goal is to glorify God. The proof that we're a disciple and we're glorifying God is that we're, we're producing fruit, much fruit. And then the only way we do those two things is by abiding in Him. The power of discipleship is found in remaining in Christ. I want to spend just the last couple minutes asking you what you're abiding in. What are you abiding in? What are you remaining in? What are you dwelling in? What are you relying upon? Is it a rich, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? I want to list a few things that if we're not careful can become substitutes for remaining in Christ because on the surface they may sound good and on the surface they may seem to be functional but they're not the right answers okay they're not necessarily bad they're just not the right answers in this scenario all too often if we're not careful we'll choose to try to remain in our good morals like I'm a good person like, I, I was talking to somebody last, uh, this this morning, I keep coming back to the game, I was talking to somebody this morning, I said, hey, you were at the game? Yep. I said, did you get on the field? And they said, nope. And their parents said, yeah, they're pretty much a rule follower. They're not gonna. I was like, okay. So if we're not careful, things like that, we can go, you know what I, I do? I'm a good moral person, and, and I'm going to stay in that lane. We could remain in another aspect. Well, I'm a good church member. As long as I'm a good church member, then, then I'm all good with God, right? Or, or along those same lines, as long as I'm doing ministry, I'm going to stay connected there. This is a dangerous thing for pastors. As pastors, if I'm not careful, and elders, if we're not careful, we can serve in the capacity of a pastor and elder, and if we're not careful, we end up remaining more in ministry and ministry activities than remaining in Christ. Does that make sense? Like, I can become so impassioned about doing the work of the ministry, but when it comes to spending time with Jesus, I can become Dead as a door now. I can't do that. I, I need to stay connected to Christ and ministry flows out of that. But if we're not careful, we can choose to try to remain in Doing ministry along those same lines some of you may be leaders in the church And you could be too focused on being a leader in the church and not remaining in Christ we, we could say you know what? I've done a Bible study before I've taught a Bible study before I could do this in my sleep I I can just pull my notes out from the last time and if we're not careful We're not relying upon the Holy Spirit to do his work There's all kinds of ways that we can try to remain in the wrong things But the only way we can produce fruit the only way we can glorify God is if we remain in Christ Abiding in Christ comes down to the love that we have for him. So here's some evaluation questions. How is your intimacy with Jesus? Are you spending time with him consistently? Are you getting into his word? Are you praying on a regular basis? And I mean more than three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and supper. Like, Are you regularly spending time in prayer? The reality is this, that God loves you. And God longs for you to abide with Him and He with you. And all of this is for His glory. So this morning, there's some of you, you can't abide or continue in Jesus because you never started in Jesus. Like you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation. Maybe you've trusted in your own accolades, your own efforts. A baptism, eating bread and drinking juice at Lord's Supper or going to church on a regular basis or being a good little boy or a good little girl. All of those things are wonderful, but none of those things bring salvation. The only way you can be saved is by trusting in Jesus to wash away your sins, repenting of your sins and coming to Him in faith. If you don't have any fruit in your life, it could be a very strong indicator that you don't know Jesus. Would you say yes to Him today? And if you do know Jesus, perhaps He's calling you back into that intimate relationship with Him where you are vitally, vibrantly, impassioned, connected to Him. Let's stay in this moment. Let's spend a moment in prayer and reflection. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to do His work inside of us so we can say yes to Him. And this morning, if you need to come and pray at the altar, it's available. If you need to pray at your seat, if you need to come and pray with me, if there's a decision you need to mark on your card, if there's somebody you need to contact, if there's a conversation you need to have in this moment, but let's see what God is saying to us about glorifying Him through producing fruit in the power of His work within us. And let's not miss the moment of what Christ is saying to us. Would you stand with me as we pray?